morning. How's everybody doing? Good to see you. Uh, what do you think about this picture up here behind me? <laughs> Does it uh, look familiar to uh, some of you? You've had some of these kinds of expectations about photographs of the family with Santa or in front of the Christmas tree, and they didn't quite turn out as you had hoped. Let me share with you a few from our church family here. This is a guy in his Christmas suit. He's not real happy, and here's, you know, one smiling and laughing. The other one is just, I don't know, he's just upset. We've got another one here. Keep going. And here, you're trying to pose with the pretty girls for Christmas, and they're not having any of it. Um, Here's the squirm. You guys are familiar with the squirm? We used to call that Shamu. Our kids used to do the backflip. And uh, while you're trying to hold them, and then here we are again, (laughs) and (laughs) I wonder what Santa's thinking, right? He's like, man, I'm supposed to be happy with these kids. And then this is my kids. These are my three kids here. And of course, uh, Ryan's trying to do the right thing. Brandon's clueless. And Kaylee is being Kaylee. And so... This is, uh, this is pictures of, you know, those, those perfect Christmas recipes you get on Pinterest that you're going to try to emulate, and so um, this looks a little bit scary to me, <laughs> and here we have the, the, the gingerbread house that just did not quite turn out as, as expected. Christmas is filled with all kinds of things like this, and what we're doing today is we're talking about the fact that the first Christmas was imperfect in itself. So if you've had an imperfect Christmas or if you had a great Christmas kind of failure in the past or you're going to have one uh, this Christmas, uh, be encouraged. You're, you're not alone. You're in good company because the first Christmas was filled with a lot of different things that did not quite turn out perfectly. There were shattered expectations um, from the lives of Joseph and Mary, who were expecting life to turn out a certain way, and it just didn't turn out as they thought it would. There were feelings of worthlessness among the shepherds. Uh, The wise men were searching for answers, trying to verify what they were seeking, and in fact, the first Christmas had its very own Grinch, and that is King Herod, who tried to ruin Christmas. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at an epic Christmas failure, from a guy that you may not even be familiar with in the Christmas story. His name is Zechariah. So turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to talk about this guy named Zechariah, and we're going to talk about the epic failure that he had in his life in that first Christmas. He's only mentioned briefly in the Christmas story, but he plays a big, big role in understanding the miracle of God with us at Christmas time. Now, just to put it in context, Zechariah, of course, was married to a woman named Elizabeth, And Elizabeth would become miraculously pregnant, uh, even in old age, with the young man who would be born, who would be called John the Baptist. And so they play a huge role, as John the Baptist was the the, uh, forerunner of Jesus, the one who would come and proclaim that Messiah was coming, and he would call for repentance. And so he played such an important role in the ministry of Jesus and the coming of Jesus. And Zechariah and Elizabeth were going to be the ones who would give birth to him. But there's a really unique story as far as that birth is concerned. Let's read it. Several verses here, okay? So stick with me. Luke 1, 5 through 25, it says this. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah 
of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. And that's important for us to understand. Because here in this epic failure that happened with Zechariah, the Bible is putting him in the context and understand he's a righteous person. Yet he made a pretty, pretty big blunder. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. This was a great privilege for priests to be chosen to go in to burn incense there in the temple. And they would take turns doing that. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and, he, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? And we, we want to really understand this question because this is key to understanding what Zechariah's failure is all about here. How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring to you this good news. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words. So we get insight into what was going on in the heart of Zechariah. The angel said, you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Despite your unbelief, my words are going to be fulfilled. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And he remained mute through the pregnancy of Elizabeth, his wife, all the way until the birth of John. The Bible goes on to tell us in this passage that once John was born, that he received back again his voice, and he was able to speak, and he was able to praise and glorify God. So we look at this from the standpoint of the Christmas story, and we come to understand, okay, well, what is going on here, and why was this such a huge blunder on the part of Zechariah? It was an epic fail, but God still achieved his purpose in and through this imperfect person and this imperfect situation. So Zechariah's epic fail was a moment of unbelief, a lapse in judgment. Now, this is important to get. And you say, well, it seems fair that he would ask these questions because this was going to be something really amazing. I mean, he and his wife were advanced in years, and for her to get pregnant was just amazing to him. And so his question back to the angel seems like it would be fair, but if you understand, particularly in the original language, what's going on in his heart and what he actually said to the angel, you understand how it really is unbelief. Here's what the New American Standard Version says in the interpretation of this passage in verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? Okay, so you get a sense of what's going on here. For I am an old man, my wife is advanced in years. How will I know this for certain? Now, if we think about the Virgin Mary, the angel came to her also and announced that she was going to give birth to a son. 
She also responded with a question. What was that question? Here it is. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. Big difference between saying, how can I know for sure? And how will this be? And you say, well, that's splitting hairs. No, it's not really. Not when you get to the heart of what's going on, the heart of these two different people. It's the difference between evidence and the need for evidence versus the need for an explanation. Now, again, it's not splitting hairs here. Because what was going on in the heart of Zacharias was different than what was going on in the heart of Mary. This is why this is such a big blunder. Zechariah needs evidence in order to have faith. The need for evidence is rooted in unbelief and in doubt. Zechariah says he can't be sure. Mary says, I can't understand how. Big difference. Mary receives an explanation, but Zechariah receives a rebuke and is made dumb by an angel. Now, why? Why would this happen to him when it wouldn't happen to Mary? There's a difference between having questions and questioning. Mary had questions. Zechariah was questioning God. One was tolerated, the other was rebuked. Mary was needing an explanation of some kind, and God provided an explanation by saying that there's going to be a miracle that takes place. Zechariah was needing a sign. Needing a sign. Big difference between God working miracles in life And our need for a sign. You say, okay, well, again, isn't that just kind of splitting hairs? No, not really. Miracles glorify God. Signs test God. Miracles are what God wants, about God's will. Signs are what I want and what I expect God to do. It's rooted in my will. Miracles are preceded by faith. If you look at all the miracles that Jesus worked in the Bible, every one of them were preceded by faith that people had that Jesus could do this. Signs, on the other hand, are not preceded by faith. They're required for faith. In other words, I must have this sign in order to believe. Miracles lead me to worship God. Signs lead me to use God. So here's the difference. Zechariah is saying, I don't believe, give me a sign, so I will. Mary's saying, I do believe, how are you going to do it? Now, signs are all about me being impressed enough by God so that I'll have faith in him, so that I will believe in him. And here's the truth about signs and stupendous events. Stupendous events rarely create permanent faith. That's why Jesus would say to the Pharisees, a wicked and adulterous generation seek for a sign. He said, I'll give you no sign except for the sign of Jonah. In other words, in the belly three days, he would be in the grave for three days and be risen again. So the initial impression of signs, although we are wowed by them, the initial impression wears off. The next one must be greater in order for us to believe again. And now our faith is reduced to emotionalism and experientialism to the point where we must have a steady diet of God to do these signs for us in order to believe. And then God becomes just the genie in the bottle. We rub it the right way, say the right words, and out comes what we want. Our faith is only as good as the last sign. That's what's going on here with Zechariah. Listen, it was a fail. It was a fail because we know the angel rebuked him in it. But failure, I want to remind you, 
failure is never final in Christ. It's true. It was true for Zechariah. It is true for us today. In Jesus, failure, epic failures can be redeemed. So let's think, for the time remaining, let's think about the role and the redeeming value of failure in our life. Epic fails, first of all, remind us that we're human. <laughs> and we just need that. Failure reminds us that we are fallible, that we're imperfect. And I don't know, maybe this is what was needed for Zechariah. I mean, he was the priest that was chosen. He was righteous, is what the Bible says. I don't know, maybe he needed a little piece of humble pie. We all do from time to time, right? Failure creates a much-needed component to life that is really healthy. say, well, Mike, what is that? Humility. We need a constant diet of humility in our lives because it makes us sensitive to make sure that we're doing what God wants, not what, not what we want. It causes us, humility causes us to listen more than speak. It causes us to be empathetic to other people when we might be prideful and um, intolerant. It causes us to be concerned about others instead of ourselves. So Churchill said this. He said, in the course of my life, I've often had to eat my words. And I must confess that I've always found it a wholesome diet. <laughs> humility is a good thing for us. And epic fails create humility. Next, epic fails are great teachers. They really are. Provided what? Provided that we are willing to learn from failure. Failure and pain is, in fact, the best teacher. So many lessons about life and about others, about myself, about God can be learned. I mean, pain and failure has a potency to it. C.S. Lewis said that God whispers to us in our pleasure, but he shouts to us in our pain. There's truth to that, isn't it? But again, we must be willing to grow and learn from failure. Otherwise, we are condemned to Repeat it. Somebody once said that a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. It's not very grace-giving, is it? There's some truth to that. So the question for all of us today is to look at our lives. Look at our lives, and are we learning from failure, or are we repeating it? Because if we are not learning from it, God is going to re-enroll us in the class. Because he wants us to learn some lessons. It's a prerequisite, isn't it? It's one of those things we get automatically re-enrolled in. I had those in college. I had to take them. Character development is one of those prerequisites for the Christian life. And God is going to put us in situations where we will learn what we need to learn. And if we flunk the exam, we'll get re-enrolled until we do. So epic fails are great teachers. Epic fails can create lingering regret. On the negative side here, Epic fails can do something in our lives that's really harmful if we're not careful. Zechariah, I can imagine Zechariah looking back at this experience, this guy who was godly, who was righteous, who wanted to please God with all of his heart, and yet he had this lapse in judgment, this moment of unbelief. And I can imagine after John was born, after Jesus was born, him looking back and say, saying to himself, how could I have been so dumb? How, how could I have not believed in that moment? And the truth is, we can be paralyzed by regret and by our past. Regret, you guys know this. I, I have sense some people walk, have walked into this room today just 
with heavy heart about regret in your life. Regret is like a poison that drains life and drains energy that causes us to be pessimistic about, about the future. Lingering regret is rooted in the expectation that things should have been perfect. I should have done this or I shouldn't have done that. The feeling of a missed opportunity. The feeling of following through on something that I should have or again not doing something that I shouldn't have done. Feeling the way that things could have been and should have been. That's what regret is all about. And here's the great news. The Bible is full of epic failures and people who could have and should have had regret about their failures and yet was able to move past them. I'm thinking this morning of the Apostle Peter. I mean, Peter, Peter was such a hard-headed guy. <laughs> I mean, if you've studied the life of Peter a little bit, you know some of the stories of Peter. Peter was a three-time man, wasn't he? He had, to, he had to have lessons three times in order for him to learn. Three times, he, you know, he denied Christ. Uh, three times he was restored there on the beach in John 21 by Jesus forgiving him. And three times the sheet coming down from heaven. Three, the number three was really important in his life. And Peter, of all people who disowned Christ, who betrayed Jesus, could have lived with lingering regret. And yet he was forgiven. And because he was forgiven, he was able to move on. And folks, I'm telling you, staying in the past, staying in your regret, I'm talking personally, staying in your regret is a recipe for a life that is drained of energy in the future that God has for you. You have to figure out a way of moving on, accepting the reality of failure, but then being able to move on past it. And everyone in this room have had epic failures of some kind in our life. Which means this. That epic fails demand humility and forgiveness to move past. And this is really, really important. It means humility in owning my failure. Please get that. Humility in owning my failure. Taking responsibility, not blaming, not excusing. Yes, I did that and it was wrong. And then forgiveness in giving it to, to Jesus and being forgiven of it. Forgiveness is such a powerful force. Many people don't understand forgiveness, though. I'm telling you, many people have this idea about forgiveness. Well, forgiveness is just all about me forgetting my failure. Forgiveness is about me minimizing it or overlooking it. No, that's not at all what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is owning the full pain and regret of what you did and the failure that you did. But then it is giving it to Christ and finding cleansing and healing and forgiveness in Jesus by what he did on the cross, the gospel is the single power on the earth. There's nothing like it to transform a life and for us to have the ability to move past failure. Why? Because there was a price paid for my failure. There's a debt that I owed. I know that. I understand that. I own that. But that debt has been paid by someone else rather than me. And so there's this transaction that takes place. I give to Jesus my failure, and in return, he gives to me forgiveness and cleansing. And with that forgiveness and cleansing, now I can find peace. I can move forward in life. It is about trusting the cross of Christ. And folks, listen, if you're a believer and you're here and you're living in regret, what you're doing in essence is that you're minimizing the work of Christ on the cross. You're making it small. You're making it petty. 
by not trusting it. And so in trusting in Christ, what we're saying is that Jesus accomplished on the cross what needed to be accomplished for my sin. And I'm going to give him all of my life, all of my sin, all of my failure. And I'm going to trust what he did on the cross and not minimize what it was done. When we don't give, when we don't receive grace, we don't give grace. We minimize the work of Jesus. I remember a few years ago just visiting a, a prison. So I can actually say I was in prison you know, and be okay with that, right? So I was, I was in a prison one time, <laughs> and I was visiting, and it was a part of a ministry that was there. And there were 80 men at this graduation from this, basically this course of walking them through, owning the things that they had done but then finding forgiveness in Christ. And many of these men stood up and testified how they had been cleansed. I thought the gospel is so miracle-working in its power. It, it is something unlike anything else. No psychologist can ever give you what the gospel can give you from the standpoint of being cleansed and forgiven of your past and being able to move on to a future. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So epic fails demand humility and they demand forgiveness in order for us to move past and if you've not fully been forgiven of that epic failure in your life you're not fully able to move past it which leads to the last thing I want to say about epic fails because of Jesus because the work of Christ on the cross epic fails should not define our whole life they should not listen it's really important for us to own failure so that the full potency and power has its effect to correct us, right? But there's a big difference between being corrected by failure and being condemned by it. There's a big difference between shame and guilt, guilt and shame. Guilt says, I made a mistake. Shame says, I am a mistake. Guilt is often used of God. On rare occasion, I've had people say to me after the service, they didn't like what, I, you made me feel guilty, as if that was a bad thing. I said, good, well, okay, well, you know, that's God, you know. God can use that as a tool. It is. Guilt is a tool of God. We shouldn't remain there, but it does bring us unto repentance and unto forgiveness. Guilt is a tool of God, but shame is a tool of the devil. Now, Zechariah, think about Zechariah. His moment of unbelief was preceded by a life of godliness and followed by a life of godliness. Failure was not final for him. It was a temporary lapse for him, not a way of life. And so we have to assume that he learned his lesson, the own responsibility for what he had done. He was a righteous man and a prayerful man, but we learn that even the best of people, listen, the best of people fall into unbelief now and then. We all do. None of us trust God promises perfectly from day to day. We don't. But thanks be to God that God does not cast us away. That it's never the end. If you look down further in Luke 1, you're going to see kind of the ending of the story after John was born after Elizabeth gave birth to him. In verse 64, it says, Immediately his mouth, that Zechariah's mouth, was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke blessing to God. Verse 67 goes on, And Zechariah, his father, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and what? Redeemed his people. He was proclaiming with his lips what he had experienced in his life. 
redemption, and forgiveness. And that's the last that we ever hear of Zechariah in the whole Bible. Just these few verses. It's the only time he is ever mentioned. He's there, righteous and blameless, once unbelieving, but then afterwards in the blessing of forgiveness, blessing God and the power of the Holy Spirit. So here's what we need to remember, please. We need to remember that with our biggest failures, there's two things that result in Christ. With our biggest failures, there is forgiveness. With our biggest failures in Jesus, there is a future. There is a future for each and every one of us. So this Christmas, this Christmas, let's move past regret. Let's move past regret. Let's trust the forgiveness of Jesus. The first Christmas, even with Zechariah's epic failure, God still achieved his plan. There was forgiveness. There was redemption. There was a plan and purpose despite failure. We're going to look at every one of these characters in the Christmas story. We're going to see similar experiences, how God, through the midst of imperfect situations and imperfect people, still achieved what he wanted. In this sense, the first Christmas, listen, the first Christmas was perfectly imperfect. Perfectly imperfect. And that's how ours can be. The old preacher said it best. God can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. He did it then. He can do it now. So Christmas life doesn't have to be perfect in order to be right, in order to be good. In fact, think about this. God came to the imperfect, knowing it was so. And in that context, in the context of real human life, he made a difference. And in him, our Christmases and our lives can be perfectly imperfect. Let's bow in prayer. I want to encourage you now with your heads bowed and your eyes closed just to consider where you are this morning. And... um, You could have walked into the room with some kind of big regret, some kind of big failure in your past. You've tried to forget about. You've tried to put away and tuck away. You've tried to put beneath the surface, but have never really dealt with the pain of the past, the pain that you could have caused yourself or some other person. The great way that you feel like you have disappointed God in it Or maybe today you've minimized it. You really haven't owned it to the degree of its impact. And I want you to know today that there is great freedom in just admitting your sin to God. He already knows. Despite your attempts to hide and to defer, he already knows. And for you to go there, to that place. Here's the thing about Jesus. He always takes us back to the scene of the crime. And he does that 
in order to offer us in that place his life, his death, his resurrection, the great eternal transaction that occurs when we admit our sin, repent of it, and cry out to God for forgiveness, trusting in the cross of Christ and what he did for us. So this morning, could you just do that, your heart, just silently between you and God? Could you just give to God whatever pain, whatever regret, whatever you walked into this room with, with shame, with guilt? Remembering that that doesn't define your whole life. doesn't have to. Today you can move past it, not in your own strength, but in the power and the strength of Jesus. I'll just give you a moment to pray. Trust him to forgive you today. Father, thank you for what Jesus did on the cross for us. We don't deserve it. We could never earn it. And yet you offer to us as a free gift. We praise you for that gift. We thank you for the ability to look at a real man who loved you and who wanted to do right and yet had a moment of failure, that you preserved this in the record of your word for us so that 2,000 years after it occurred, we could look at it, read it, study it, understand it, and you could speak to us through it. A man who desired to be good and do good and yet failed in that moment. We can all relate to that, God. So we thank you today that we can walk from this room absolutely cleansed, having been washed by the blood of Christ, thankful for the forgiveness that we find in Jesus, repenting of our sin, and then moving forward into the future that you have for us, God, laying it at your feet, and thanking you, God, that this amazing way, the exchange that we make with you is one that blesses us and allows us to live a life of purpose and in your plan. Thank you that in your sovereignty you achieve everything that you want, Lord, despite our imperfections. We praise you for that. Help each and every one of us to move past regret and to trust you with our future. We love you. And we pray these things all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you all.